So the first question is, why is Atma Vichara so difficult? Even after years of practicing, I feel I haven't reached anywhere. I am still bogged down by my, by my vasanas. We say it's difficult. Bhagavan says it's very easy. There's nothing easier than, uh, than, <coughs> um, than Atma Vichara. If we think of it, what Bhagavan says is obviously true because we spend all our time attending to things other than ourselves. When we find it so easy to attend to things other than ourselves, which don't actually exist, which are just mere appearances, how can it be difficult to attend to ourselves? The one thing that actually exists and is ever clearly shining within us as I am. There's whatever else we may know, we always know I am. Whether we know anything else, as in waking and dream, or know nothing else, as in sleep. The one thing we always know is I am, because that is what we actually are. So attending to ourselves is never actually difficult. There are two reasons why it seems to be difficult. That is, because it is attending to other things are all relatively gross. Whereas our own being, I am, is something very subtle. It's not an object. It's not even the subject. It's the reality of the subject. So it is very subtle. Um, so until we clearly understand what Bhagavan is talking about, it seems to be something very... For um, people, often it seems very... What is this I that I have to refer to, I have to attend to? The I that we have to attend to is the same I that is puzzling about what is it, how do I, what is the I that I have to attend to? So there's only one I, we just have to attend to ourselves. So firstly, we need to, we need to think deeply about Bhagavan's teachings, understand what he's saying. What he's saying actually is very, very simple, but we just have to attend to ourselves. So the first thing is we, we, it's very easy to fall into this idea, but it's something difficult to, to do. So first, we've got to remove that idea. We've got to recognize that I am is the one thing that is so, that is, it's our fundamental awareness. Whatever else we may be aware of, we are always aware I am. Awareness of other things comes and goes, but the awareness I am always remains. So it's our fundamental awareness, and it's always so, so clear to us. Even when we say, people often say, but I'm not able to find this I. The I that says I'm not able to find is the I, but we are, there's no other I. It's not one I looking for another I. We are to attend to ourselves. So if we think carefully about what Bhagavan has said, it should be clear to us, but it's actually very easy. So that that the first difficulty is our thinking that it is something difficult, the thinking that it's something elusive, something we don't know. Whereas it's the one thing that we always know. So once we've overcome that initial difficulty of thinking that it is difficult, once we understand how easy it is, then comes the real difficulty. The real difficulty is that we, we are more interested in attending to other things than we are in attending to ourselves. In fact, to tell the truth, we don't want to attend to ourselves. We'll, we'll do anything to avoid attending to ourselves. Why? For the very simple reason that, um, that attending to ourselves 
is killing ourselves, quite literally. Not not just killing the body. Killing the body is that's a minor thing. Uh, bodies come and bodies go. The the real suicide is not killing the body. The real suicide is killing the ego. And by attending to ourselves, we are we are killing ego. So because of until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely, this will always seem difficult. <coughs> I, I, we can illustrate this with an example. Supposing you've got a very sharp knife, and uh, with that sharp knife, and, and you've got a watermelon, you can use that sharp knife to cut the watermelon. If the knife is sharp enough, it's cutting a watermelon is relatively hard. Uh, sorry, relatively easy. It's not difficult cutting a watermelon. Even though a watermelon has got quite a hard exterior, it's actually, once you put the knife in, you can cut it quite easily. But easier than cutting a watermelon is to cut one's own throat, because the throat is something very soft. We can easily, with the same knife that we cut the watermelon, it's very easy to cut our throat. But though it's very easy to cut our throat, it's also very difficult. Can we do it? No, we can't. Why, why are we not able to cut our, our throat with the same knife but we cut the watermelon? Because cutting our throat means we're finished, or at least his body is finished. So because of our unwillingness to do so, it seems very difficult just to take a knife and slit our throat, though, though actually it's very easy. So the only difficulty is our unwillingness to do so. It's exactly the same with that Mabichara. Because we are unwilling to surrender ourselves completely, it seems to us to be very difficult to hold on to self-attentiveness because holding on to self-attentiveness means surrendering ourselves completely. And we are not yet willing to let go of ourselves, let go of this uh, false identity that we now have, uh, let go of the ego, which is having that false identity. So the difficulty lies in our lack of willingness. This is why Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. In order to go deep in this path, it requires all-consuming love. That all-consuming love is what is called bhakti. That is what Akshramamaya is all about, because Bhagavan's path is the path of love. Without, without, um, without love, nobody can succeed in this path of uh, this path of Atmavichara. This is the this is the pinnacle of the path of surrender. This is <clears throat> before we come to the path of of Atmavichara, all we can do is surrender mind. We cannot surrender I. The only way to surrender I, to surrender ourself, is uh, to investigate ourselves. Because the very nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping things other than itself, and to subside by attending to itself. So until we surrendering other things is relatively easy because we still retain our identity. I am a great renunciate. I've surrendered everything. I've surrendered all my wealth, all my, um, I've taken sannyata, I've surrendered everything. We, we, we can think like that, but there's still an I but saying I have surrendered. So that is not the complete surrender. The, the real surrender is, the, is not just the surrender of a renunciation of mine, is the surrender or renunciation of I. And that requires all-consuming love. Until we have, until our love to know and to be what we actually are 
is so all-consuming, but we are willing to give up everything else for the sake of knowing and being what we actually are. We are not yet ready to surrender ourselves completely, and therefore this part of self-investigation seems to us to be difficult. It seems to be difficult only because of a lack of willingness. So how do we cultivate that willingness? The most effective way is persistent practice by trying more and more to be self-attentive in spite of any amount of seeming difficulty, slowly, slowly, we we uh, cultivate the willingness, the love to turn within and to hold on to our being. So that's why Bhagavan said, practice is absolutely necessary. Practice is the only way. By persist- Only by persistent practice can we slowly, slowly uh, weaken the Vishaya Vasanas and strengthen the sat vasana. The vishaya vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all our des- likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and everything. In other words, they are, it's under the sway of our vishaya vasanas that our attention goes outwards. Sat vasana is the opposite of vishaya vasanas. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. Sat means being. So our inclination to hold on to our being, to be as we actually are, uh, that that is such vasana. That is what is otherwise called swatma bhakti, love for our own real nature, love for our own self. So um, we can cultivate that such vasana and weaken the vishaya vasanas only to the extent to which we practice being self attentive, because the nature of vasanas, vasanas have no strength of their own. Whatever strength vasanas seem to have is the strength that we have uh, we have bestowed upon them. That is by allowing ourselves to be um, uh, by allowing ourselves to be uh, swayed by any vasana. We are thereby strengthening it. By refraining from being swayed by any vasana, we are thereby weakening it. So when we when we hold on to self-attentiveness, or at least try to be self-attentive, we are strengthening the sat vasana and weakening all the vishaya vasanas. So there is no this the path that Bhagavan has taught us is the direct path. So if you're on the direct path and you ask what is the shortcut, there cannot be a shortcut. The direct path is the shortest <laughs> cut there is. So there's no. There's no shortcut other than this path. We have to follow. That means we have to persistently practice. Doesn't matter how difficult it may seem to be. Even if we are spending, even if it's a a moment here and a moment there, uh, every moment of self-attentiveness is of tremendous value. Is taking us every moment of self-attentiveness is a, a a big step in the right direction. So let us treasure every single moment of self-attentiveness. Let us not expect to sit in meditation to be self-attentive for twenty minutes. It doesn't work like that. The more we try to be self-attentive, the more for, the greater the force with which the vasanas arise. So it is a it is a struggle. It's an inevitable struggle. That's what Akshramma is all about. That's what Bhagavan is saying in um, in verse um, verse. Um, sorry, just the number. In verse seven, he says, "Unaye matri oda dulatinmel that means be seated firmly upon my uh, mind so that it does not, uh, um, on the mind, 
somebody does not uh, run outwards cheating you. Outwards is not there, but run. Somebody does not run cheating you. That implies run outwards. Um, and in verse eight, he says, "Usutrulambida dunai kandadankida unnarahika tarunachala." Trulam, the mind whose very nature is to wander about the world, um, so that seeing you un so that seeing you uninterruptedly, it may subside, show your beauty. Um, and then in verse nine he says, tippo dene kalavabidil um, uh, <coughs> destroying me now itself. Uh, if you, if you do not if you do not unite with me now, destroying me, uh, is this your manliness? So it's all this is praying for the same thing. And then in this verse, why this Why this sleep when others are dragging me? What are those others? It's the vishaya vasanas. Um, does this become you, Arunachala? And then in the next verse, I'm Bula Kalva, I'm Bula Kalva means for five cents thieves. That's the same Vishay of Asanas, but it's drawing our attention out to enjoy the five types of sense uh, uh, impression, the sense object. Um, and then in the, the verse 12, Oru, Oruvana Munde, Oriteva Baruva, Unsudeyidarunachala. Who can come in? Uh, um, uh, um, who can come in uh, only to uh, deceiving you or how to say it um, okay, I'll just get the uh, um, hiding you hiding you means uh, that, 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 that literally means hiding you it means um, uh, um a hiding it implies hiding from you that's what it implies oruvana munne olitu hiding from you who can come in this is your trick so in all these verses what bhagavan is talking the, the, the primary problem is the bhagavan is talking about is about the vishaya vasanas it's the vishaya vasanas that are making our mind run outwards it's the vishaya vasanas that are making our mind roam about the world it's the vishaya vasanas that he refers to in this verses um, in this um uh, this uh 10th verse as um others it's the vishaya vasanas that he refers to in the next verses the five sense thieves and in, in the, when he says, who can come in uh, uh, hiding from you? Again, he's referring to the Vishaya Vasanas. So this, this struggle to hold on to self-attentiveness is what Akshramraya is all about. It's what the whole spiritual path is about. That is, Bhagavan sometimes used to say, the spiritual path is nothing but a battle being fought in our own will between Satvasana on the one hand and Vishayavasana on the other hand. So we have to be willing to fight this fight, to try more and more to hold on to self-attentiveness. It doesn't matter how difficult it may seem to be. So long as we are trying to be self-attentive, that's all that matters. Because it's our willingness to try is the bhakti. And that is the key to success in this path. Without bhakti, we cannot succeed in this path. So it doesn't matter how difficult it may seem to be. Did we come here to Bhagavan just to do something easy? 
There's so many easy things you can do. You can do japa, you can do puja, you can do dhyana. All these are relatively easy, seemingly, because it doesn't, they're not threatening the very existence of ourself as ego. Whereas this part, it is, it, we are putting our head on the chopping block. Are we willing to do so? No, we're not. So we, every time the axe begins to come down, we jump back. So because we're not yet ready to die. We're not yet ready. We, we don't have the intense love that Bhagavan expressed when he sang, Enayari Tippo, destroying me now itself. Um, if you do not unite with me, is this your manliness? Such intense love, that such intense willingness to die here and now, that is what is required. So we must be so, have all-consuming love uh, to know and to be what we actually are. And to know and to be what we actually are, we need to surrender ourselves. We need to let this ego be annihilated completely. So that is where the difficulty lies. The difficulty lies ultimately only in our lack of willingness. And the willingness can be cultivated only by persistent practice. So I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Right. So let us not be disheartened by the difficulty. However difficult it may be, we, this small little ego, are trying to become Brahman. Let's think of it in most terms. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge undertaking that we, that we have embarked upon. So let us not be uh, uh, perturbed by difficulty. Success is assured. That I read earlier what Bhagavan says in the 12th paragraph. Those who have been caught in the, just like the prey in the jaws of a tiger can never escape. Those who have been caught in the glance of Guru's grace will certainly be saved by him and will never be forsaken. So success is assured in this path. But Nevertheless, it is necessary to, uh, to uh, walk unfailingly in the path, uh, according to the path that Guru has shown. In other words, we need to, what, Bhagavan, what is the path Bhagavan has shown us? This simple path of self-investigation and self-surrender. We have to be ready to walk this path. If, we've, if we're willing to walk the path, success is absolutely assured. But our willingness is required. Uh, the next question, Michael, is yeah. uh, I have observed that people commonly chant Om Namo Bhagavate Shri Ramanaya while you chant Om Namo Bhagavate Shri Arunachala Ramanaya. Just out of curiosity, Abhav being the same, is there any difference between the two? Is there any difference between Arunachala and Ramana? No, no difference. Because there's no difference, I like Arunachala Ramana. But it's, of course, it's the same. Whether you say Arunachala or you say Ramana or you say Arunachala Ramana, they are one and inseparable. It is different names for different forms, but the reality underlying the form of Arunachala, the reality underlying the form of Ramana is one reality. So uh, Bhagavan himself, uh, coined the name Arunachala Ramana when he was asked about his real identity, who he actually is, whether he's this god or that god or which god he's an incarnation of, he sang, Ariyati Tarajivara Dahavari Jaguhail Arivairami Paramatuman Arunachala Ramanan. Arunachala is Ramana is the Paramatman but blissfully exists as awareness 
that means the awareness I am, uh, in, the, in the cave of the heart lotus of all different jivas, beginning with Hari, beginning with Lord Vishnu. So from the highest god to the lowest uh, uh, insect, he is shining in the heart of all of us as I am, uh, uh, that fundamental awareness I am. So how to know that? He says in the next two lines of that verse, Parival Ulam Uruha, the heart melting with love, Paranandidu Goheyandu, reaching the, or entering the, the, the cave where that, uh, where that sublime supreme dwells, Arivam Viri Tirava, the eye of awareness opening, Nijam Arivai, you will know the, your real nature, you will know the reality. Adubeliyam, it will reveal itself. So this is, Bhagavan himself has used that name, Aranacha Ramana, to refer to himself. Not only in that verse, even in the last verse of Akshramlai, he, he, he calls Aranachala as Aranachala Ramana. Malaya Lita Runachala Ramana Ben, Malaya Nindarala Arunachala. So the name of Aranachala was so dear to Bhagavan, but to think of Bhagavan with to think of Ramana without Aranachala, we we can't. They they are inseparable. So I I like I like to include Aranachala along with uh, Bhagavan's name because Bhagavan himself liked to include. He didn't like to. He never identified himself as anything other than Arunachala. That's why I prefer that. But of course, it's the same as whether you say Arunachala Ramana or Ramana, it's the same. There's no, there's absolutely no difference whatsoever. So whether you prefer uh, Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya, it's just a matter of personal preference, but it's exactly the same. Um, the next question is um in happiness and the art of being you write though there are many people who claim to be spiritual gurus the true spiritual guru is very rare and the term guru should only be applied to those rare beings like buddha shri krishna christ adi shankara shri ramakrishna and shri ramana who have a clear divine mission to reveal to us the path to attain true self-knowledge you have a very high standard for who the true guru is. Given this, what do you make of the current spiritual marketplace? <laughs> this current spiritual marketplace is not a new marketplace. There has been a spiritual marketplace from time immemorial. Uh, Sadhuam used to say, if you want to cheat people, the easiest way to cheat people is in the spiritual market. Because if you go to a, a vegetable market, for example, and you you put a pile of of, of of nice round stones, and you say they are um, brinjals, uh, aubergine, uh, eggplant. If you try to sell them, nobody's going to buy them because everyone knows the difference between stones and and aubergine. But if you go to a diamond market and you with some nice glittery glass beads, you may be able to. Uh, cheat some people because not everyone knows the difference in diamonds and glass beads. Not everyone can tell the difference. But if you go to the spiritual marketplace, you can sell anything and everything and you'll find buyers because nobody knows what is spirituality. Why we come to the spiritual path? Because we don't know what is spirituality. If we knew what is spirituality, 
there, there would be no need for, for, I mean, spirit, what is the spirit? The spirit is I am, because we don't know ourselves as we actually are. Um, we know, none of us know what is true spirituality. So it's very easy to cheat people in the spiritual path. So you, you, in, in all history, in all religions, you find uh, people who are exploiting the belief of others. This is inevitable. But uh, regarding the high standard I have for what is guru, Bhagavan himself has a high standard. See, in the first sentence of the 12th paragraph, he says, Kadavalum guruvum unmail verala. God and guru are in truth not different. So are all these um, Tom, Dick and Harry who claim to be gurus, um, these Babaji's and Mataji's and all these, uh, are they all, well, they will say, yes, I am God. But are we to take them all to be God? No, they are. It's inevitable. There will always be. But we can't say all of them are totally. But of course, there are some people who are just out to cheat others, to take advantage of others. Some people, some of it, many of the gurus, they genuinely believe what they believe in. And they genuinely believe that they are guiding people in the spiritual path. So they may be quite genuine in, in their, in their self-belief. But it is something completely different to a real guru. Real guru is nothing but numb. So long as there is ego, there is no guru. Only when ego is completely annihilated, uh, is um, then what is acting through the mind, speech, and body is only God. And that alone is guru. So, yeah, gu the true guru is very rare. And even those whose egos have been annihilated, uh, the Jiva Muktas, they don't all take on the role of Guru. See, uh, Bhagavan's foremost disciple, people like Murugana, Sadhuam, and such people, they would never accept the role of Guru because they say Bhagavan alone is Guru. No other Guru is necessary. So um, it, it, we can't even say that every Jnani is, a, is Guru. Guru is a special role given to Sat. It's a divine... Um, I think Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, if I'm not correct, he said certain souls, they have that divine commission. Um, so it, it is, it's a very special role, the role of guru. And we, we need not aspire to have that role. If we, what is required is that we are good disciples. We don't have to aspire to be guru. If we are, if we are good disciples, we'll be swallowed by guru. That's sufficient for us. But uh, for um, for people who are not ready to surrender themselves completely, there are many of them whose ambition is to be guru. So long as we have an ambition to be guru, we are far from being guru. But one who has any ambition at all, when that one is annihilated, then uh, then guru becomes well. Then guru shines forth as our own real nature. But that doesn't mean that I am guru. Where I dies, there is guru. I means the false I, but I that says I am this or I am that. I hope that adequately answers that question. <clears throat> the next question is, uh, it seems to me that after many years of following the practice of self-inquiry and Bhagwan's teachings, that grace is everything. Without grace on this path, we won't get far but how to ensure we remain within its hold to stop us moving outwards all the time? 
that is what the path is all about. Yes, grace is everything. Bhagavan often used to say, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It's grace that draws us to this path. It's grace that leads us along the path, keeps us on the path. And it's grace that will finally swallow us. So grace is everything. We have to cooperate with grace. That is, grace is not something external. That is, grace is there in our own heart. What is shiny in our heart as I am, that is Bhagavan, that is grace. Bhagavan is grace itself. So we, by clinging to him in our heart, we are thereby yielding ourselves to his grace, cooperating with his grace. So we, we know Bhagavan has clearly taught us the path, trying to turn within, holding on to our own being, onto I am, that is the way to surrender ourselves. If so long as we are trying our best to do that, grace will do everything else. So ultimately, what is what is required is that we yield ourselves to grace. We stop. So long as we're allowing our attention to go outwards, we are rebelling against grace because grace is the power that draws our attention back within. So we have to yield ourselves to that power by trying our best to be self-attentive. But ultimately, yes, it is grace that does everything. Whatever we seem to be doing, it is only grace doing through us. But we need to do. We need to, we need to play our little part of trying to be self-attentive. I hope I've answered that adequately. I don't have any quite any more questions here, but if there's anybody who would like to ask any questions. I wonder, can I ask something then? Sure, of yes. course. Hello, Michael. Hello. Mm, yeah. <laughs> nice. uh, thank you very much for your time to, to ask, to answer all our questions. Um, I was wondering, so uh, when Ramana was asked about the nature of what we are, you mentioned uh, Satchitananda. Yeah. And quite often, uh, it's also related as uh, uh, Atma Swarupa. But yeah. uh, one part that I cannot make it connected is when it is said to be Mauna. I think it's translated as silence. So I was wondering, what does that mean, actually, in, in scope of uh, Ramana Maharshi teachings? <clears throat> you say our real nature is Satchitananda. What I, is, I didn't say, I didn't say, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, said. Okay, okay. Bhagavan said, yes, exactly, Bhagavan said. Yeah, but, but you, you referred to Bhagavan saying that our real nature is Satchitananda. What is Sat? Sat is being. Being is, is itself silence. Silence is being. That is the opposite of, of, uh, of uh, it's not exactly, yeah, we can say the opposite. The opposite, for want of a better word, the opposite of being is doing. Of course, it's not opposite because we have to be in order to do. But uh, doing is contrary to a nature of being. Being is just being without doing anything. So our, when it is said that our real nature is sat, that implies our nature is not doing, but just being. And when we are just being, that is silence. Noise, doing anything is noise. The first noise is the rising of ego. 
So it's when you said, I think two weeks ago or something, that uh, actually Atmavishara is not a doing, but it's uh, kind of a being. It's so being, that's what exactly. it implied also with Mauna. Yes, she, it, it is it, uh, a being that is can be called as silence. Yes, these are all different. That is, being means being actually. Actually means motionlessness. What is motionless is silent. Sil noise comes out of movement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even physical noise. What yeah. is it? It's a vibration of the air. When you, when there's physical silence, the, the air is quiet. There's no movement in the air. Of, of course, Bhagavan isn't talking about physical silence. He isn't even talking about mental silence. Silence is our real nature. Because our, our real nature is just pure being. My, so, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. A follow-up on that. Um, you said as long as the body exists, right? As long as we are here, doing is, of course, you know, natural. So may I assume that when you say being, not doing, that while we are doing something, like I'm cleaning the house, etc., that the ownership should be not there, that it is just prarabdha carrying our body and the duties. So can I say that then when you mean no doing, just being, the no doing part is do, but don't take the ownership or just not do anything, just sit. I, I, just clarification. Um. When you say ownership, I think you're meaning the doership. We cannot, yeah. we cannot do without doership. The very fact that I am doing without doership is a contradiction. Doership means the false notion I am doing. That is, what is doing, is the, it is the three instruments of action, a mind, speech, and body. These are what are acting. Why we have this sense of doership? Because we experience this mind, speech, and body as I. So doership is the very nature of ego. So so long as there's ego, there will be doership. So the, the state of silence, the state of just being, is the state in which we don't rise as ego. Bhagavan has, um, actually in the sixth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan has uh, has made this, uh, has spoken about this. Um, he says, um, Nan enum ninevu kinjitum ila idame surupamahum. The place, here he's using place, obviously metaphorically, the place which is complete, that means we can take it as a state, or it, it, he's using place in a metaphorical sense. Let's just use the word place as he uses it. The place that is uh, devoid of even the slightest trace of the thought called I, that means ego, alone is sarupa, alone is our real nature. Aduve monomenopodom, that alone is, uh, is uh, what is called mona. Uh, Ivaru summa irupadukutan jnana drishti endrupaya. Only two, uh, that is, the, the, the name jnana drishti, that is jnana, jnana sight, uh, refers only to uh, thus, uh, being thus. Summa iru means summa irupadu means just being only to just being in this way. Um, that means by not rising as I. Um, 
Summa irupadavadu, what is just being, manate atmasarupatil leika sevade, making the mind uh, dissolve in atmasarupa, that alone is just being. So here he's equating um, mona, just being, um, absence of ego, all these are equated. So long as ego rises, so long as there's a thought called I, uh, what Bhagavan means by the thought called I, he clarifies later in the eighth paragraph, he says, um, ahankaram, that if a thought called I alone is ahankara, why he calls it a thought? Because it's not the pure I. The pure I is devoid of adjuncts, whereas the thought called I is that pure I mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am this body, I am such and such a person. So that is ego. Where that is completely absent, that is Swarupa. And uh, that alone is what is called silence, and that alone is what is called just being, or Jnana Drishti. And that means the state in which mind is dis dissolved in, uh, in oneself. So, but that's the final goal, though, not every that, day. Practice. That's the final goal, but the, the path and the goal are not different. Bhagavan, Bhagavan says in Guru Vachaka Kauvai, um, um, he says, Tane upayam, tane upayam. That is, the means and the goal are both only oneself. There's no difference between them. Bhagavan often used to say, if the path was of a different nature to the goal, it couldn't lead to the goal. So the goal is just being as we actually are. The path is to just be as we actually are. How can we just be as we actually are? By not rising as ego. How can we not rise as ego? By clinging to self-attentiveness. So, And self-attentiveness is not a doing. That is, attending to anything other than ourself is a doing, because our attention is moving away from ourself. It's a mental activity, attending to anything else other than ourself. But attending to ourself is a subsidence of all mental activity, a cessation of all mental activity. So being self-attentive is just being. So we, we cannot give up the sense of doership so long as we rise as ego. In order to cease rising as ego, we need to cling to self-attentiveness. Clinging to self the state in which we are holding on to self-attentiveness, that is the state of just being, sumayarupadu. That is the state of silence, mona. That is our real nature, Swarupa. Which is the same state that we are in when we are in deep sleep, but in somewhere we are just not aware of it. It is the same state we are in even now, but because we have seemingly risen as ego, we seem to be apart from that, but that, that is all. We are never anything other than that. But, but right after borrowing the awareness of self-awareness. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. By, by, by rising as ego, we don't cease to be what we actually are. It's a, all just a seeming, uh, a, a seeming rising. If we turn our attention back to ourselves to see what we actually are, we will see that we, were, we have never risen as ego. We've always been just as we are. If you, if you look carefully at the snake, you will see that it was never actually a snake. It was always only a rope. And why also quite often it's called a Brahmagantri, because it's like the nod to God or something like that. It's what prevents you to see, to be able to see your true nature. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, thank you very much, man. Right.
so so uh, so to coming back to what you were saying so long as we are we rise as ego we have this false identity i am this body this body includes all the five sheaths so it includes uh, all the three instruments of action mind speech and body so doership is the very nature of ego we cannot get rid of doership without getting rid of ego how do we separate ourselves from ego only by clinging to our own being. So the more we cling to our own being, the more ego subsides, the more doership subsides, and then whatever actions are done by mind, speech, and body, we are separated from that because we are, so long as we remain subsided in the place from which we've risen, we are unaffected by any action. But as soon as we allow ourselves to rise, even when slightest by allowing our attention to move away from ourselves, then we get caught up in action. And that that ceaseless action is what is called samsara. Samsara means some sometimes the samsara is explained as samchara. Chara means moving. Samchara means moving very well. So so long as we rise as ego, we are caught up in samsara. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludunapadu, but samsara is nothing but ego itself. This full sigh that rises between the, that is neither the body nor is it satchit, but rises between the two, borrowing the properties of both. So Bhagavan's teachings are so, so simple. They all point back to the same thing. All we need to do is to try more and more to hold on to self-attentiveness. By holding on to self-attentiveness, ego subsides. And if we hold on to self-attentiveness firmly enough and uh, keenly enough, ego will dissolve in its source. And then what always exists alone will remain as it always is. That is Satchitananda. That is Mona. That is God. Guru, Brahman, whatever you want to call it, and Tatvamasi, we are that. It's motionless, the name yes, of Arunachala. Yes. That, that is the significance of the name Arunachala. Achala, the, the Chala means movement. Achala means unmoving. So hills, a hill is called Achala because it's unmoving. So Arunachas symbolizes that state of achalatvam or, or motionlessness or um, silence, <laughs> silence. Arunachas is monaswarupa. And Bhagavan is also monaswarupa, but Bhagavan of his own accord never gave any teachings. Whatever teachings he gave was only when he was asked anything. But in Bhagavan's view, there is no Agnana and no Agnani. So to whom is he to give any teaching? Why to give any teaching? It's only when we ask that he gives teachings. That is the true Mauna Guru. Uh, Michael, the next question is, uh, Namaskaram, Michael. I have two questions. Can you please explain a bit more about verse 28 uh, of Uladu? Uh, Narpadu, and mainly where it says controlling breath and speech. And secondly, could you explain the mirror example where light is being investigated? As I'm very keen to listen to the explanation from you. Okay. Verse 28 of Uludanapadu, what Bhagavan says is, Erumvumahande eramidate niril virunda 
Porol, Kana Vendi, Murhu del Pol, Kunda Matial, Pechumuchi Adiki Kondu, Ule Andu Aria Vendum. Ari. Okay, what that means is um, like sinking, wanting to see something that has fallen in water, sinking within, uh, restraining speech and breath by a sharpened mind. Uh, Kondamati means a sharpened mind or a very keen uh, intellect, a very keen power of attention or power of discernment. It is necessary to know the place where the rising ego rises. Um, the place where the rising ego rises is obviously our real nature. That, is, that from which we have risen is the, 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 what is the ego, the rising ego is the, is the false awareness, I am this body. What is the place or the source from which it rises? It is only the pure awareness, I am. So uh, in order to know that, that pure awareness, I am, it's necessary to sink deep within. How do we sink deep within? By a, by a keen, uh, by a, by a what, what Bhagavan calls kundamati. That means a sharp, pointed, keen, acute, penetrating, uh, discerning mind or intellect. It, it, it means, uh, it, imp it, it implies uh, that power of discernment needs to be very keen and very sharp. Power of attention needs to be very keen and very sharp. Um, so by that, and by by attending to ourselves very keenly, we also thereby subdue the speech and breath. That is, if you if you um, if if we if we <clears throat> for, for example, when someone has a if you if someone hears some shocking news, they say it took my breath away, because when when we're in a state of shock. At least for a brief time, our breath is uh, breathing stops. Um, so when you when we attend to ourselves very keenly, it will naturally well, nat speech obviously will stop, and uh, breath breathing also will stop. Of course, we can be partially self attentive even in the midst of day to day activities. But when we go really deep within, our, the speech and breath will automatically stop. So much so, when Bhagavan had his death experience at the age of 16, when that intense fear of death came to him, and he turned his attention within to find out when his body dies, do I also die? He, the, his self-attentiveness was so keen but the body actually became lifeless. For 20 minutes, his body, in, in many books it said he, as if he enacted, uh, he lay down as if he was dead. No. Bhagavan clarified, actually, the, body's, um, the body was lifeless for 20 minutes. And then after about 20 minutes or so, suddenly the life came back to the body. Many years later, when um, that's why in the, in the Kali Vemba version of this, uh, oh, no, no, it's not this verse 28. The next verse, verse 29, he begins uh, in the Kali Vemba version, he begins with, Pinnam pole tindu udalam. That means leaving the body like a corpse. That's what Bhagavan actually did when he was a 16-year-old. That is, his attention turned within so keenly that his body just lay there as a corpse. It was literally, if someone had come in at that time, they would have seen a dead body there. 
his body had literally died. And many years later, um, th that is when the first biographies were written about Bhagavan, that is, um, or first big bio book-length biographies were written. Um, the first one was... Um, was uh, B.V. Narasimha Swami's uh, self-realization. In that, he picked, he collected so many stories, and among the stories he collected was uh, what he referred to as Bhagavan's second death experience, which was in about uh, in about 1912 or so. One day when Bhagavan was returning, Bhagavan and... Um, I've forgotten the name. But the devotee, but Bhagavan's first attendant... Oh, his name has slipped my mind. Anyway, he and Bhagavan had gone to Pachamankoy. Well, Swami? Uh, yes, Parani Swami. Yes, uh, correct, correct, correct. I was thinking Paramal Swami, but of course it's not Paramal Swami, Parani Swami. So Bhagavan and Parani Swami had gone to uh, Pachamankoil and they had uh, had a bath in the tank there and they had the oil bath, which means they rub oil and then seek a tool, the soap nut powder over the body. And when they were returning, it was hot sun. And in the hot sun, Bhagavan felt a bit uh, um, a bit sort of lightheaded. So he sat on the rock. There was a big rock there called Amai Parai, tortoise rock, I think it is. Um, if I remember correctly, Amai means tortoise, yes. Um, so Bhagavan sat on that rock and his body became lifeless. And Parani Swami was uh, started to weep, and he hugged Bhagavan's body, and um, thinking Bhagavan had died. And about twenty minutes later, the life came back to the body. So Bhivi um, Narasimha Swami wrote about this in his in Self Realization, and then um, um, Sudananda Bharati he also wrote in. Um, um, in uh, Ramana Vijayam, the same thing. And this was in all the biographies was, that were there. There were many inaccuracies in those early biographies, but Bhagavan didn't point out until later, in, towards the end of his bodily life. Occasionally, he would point out inaccuracies. So one of the inaccuracies he pointed out one day, he said, um, Though it's referred to as the second death experience, that wasn't actually the second death experience. That was the last death experience. Between what happened in Madurai and that that day on Amai Parai, it had happened to him many times, but the body just became lifeless. And after 10, 15, 20 minutes, it, the life came back again. But the reason that was referred to as the second death experience, that was the only one that people knew about because it was actually witnessed by Parani Swami. The other ones it happened, the other times it happened, nobody noticed what had happened to Bhagavan. So Bhagavan said many times his body became lifeless like that. But the first time it happened was that day in Madurai, and the body was actually uh lifeless for 20 minutes and the life then came back so um uh, when when we turn the attention within so keenly automatically the, the speech and breath will uh will be restrained if in on the other hand if we try to restrain the speech and breath where is our attention our attention is on the speech and breath so we are not we are not sinking deep within. Sinking deep within means being. It's only we can sink deep within only by being keenly self-attentive. So because we ignore the speech and breath, they 
they they are thereby restrained because we our attention is only on ourselves. So I don't know whether that adequately answers the question about um, but you uh, the significance of why Bhagavan says restraining speech and breath is not that we have to deliberately restrain our speech and breath. It will just happen automatically if we when our when we are so keenly self attentive. But the mind sinks deep within, the speech and breath will thereby be automatically restrained. So how are the speech and breath restrained? By the same kondamati, by the same keenly, uh, very sharp power of self-attention, the same power of sharp self-attention by which we sink deep within, by that same power of uh, self-attention, the speech and breath will automatically be restrained. So that was the first part of the question. What was the second part? Or oh, about the reflected, the, um, the, the analogy of a reflected ray. That is, pure awareness is, uh, is not aware of anything other than itself. The mind is a form of awareness, mind or ego is a form of awareness, but an awareness that knows things other than itself. So but, but since nothing other than pure awareness actually exists, being aware of anything other than pure awareness is not real awareness, it's only a semblance of awareness. So it is called chidabhasa. A basa means a, a semblance or a likeness. That's the primary meaning of a basa. A secondary meaning of a basa is a reflection. Because if you look in a mirror and see your face in the mirror, what you are seeing is not actually your face. You're only seeing a likeness or a semblance of your face. So in that sense, a basa also means a reflection. So generally, chidabasa is translated as a reflection of awareness. But I think it's more useful to understand it as a, to understand the primary meaning is a likeness of a, or a semblance of awareness. It's not real awareness. It only seems to be awareness because real awareness is only pure awareness, awareness that is aware of nothing other than itself. So, um, but uh, a basta does also mean uh, reflection, and we can use that. Bhagavan sometimes um, use the analogy of the sun and the moon. The sun shines by its own light. The moon is just, the, the light of the moon is only a reflection of the sunlight. Likewise, the, the, in this analogy, the, the sun is analogous to our real nature, which shines by its own light. The moon is analogous to the mind, which shines only by the, it, the, the light of, by which the mind is knowing the world, is only a reflection of the pure awareness. Uh, because in pure awareness, no world can appear. It's only in the, uh, in the reflected light of the mind that the world appears. So the mind is analogous to the moon, which is a reflected light. So um, when explaining the the practice of the path of self-investigation, one way in which Sadhuam explained it was using an, an, uh, an analogy, drawing on this uh, fact. That is, if you, if you have outside, you've got bright sunlight, but in a, in a, if you've got a house with no windows, just a small door or a, maybe a cave with the opening mouth, the mouth of the cave, um, 
but if you enter the cave from outside, it appears dark inside. So if you want to explore the what's inside that cave or inside that house, the, the light of the sun needs to be reflected in there. So if you've got a small piece of um, mirror lying on the ground outside and that mirror reflects the light of the sun into the dark room, you can then use the light, that reflected light, to know what to, to explore the room and to see what's in the room. Um, but instead of using that reflected light, so long as you're interested in the contents of the dark room, that is the world, you will be using that reflected light to, to investigate the world and uh, to experience uh, the world. But if you lose interest in what is the... Um, what, what's in that room and are interested to know what is the source of the light by which you're able to see the things, uh, uh, objects in the room, what should you do? You should, you see that beam of light coming into the room, you should follow that beam of light outside. When you follow it outside, you come to the mirror. But when you come to the mirror, you're, you're, you're actually you're, you're brought back into a full sunlight. When Once you come outside, tracing that reflected ray of light to come to the mirror, as soon as you, once you've come to the mirror, you're then in the full uh, sunlight. This is analogous to turning our attention back within, tracing ego back to its source. Ego is the reflected light. The source from which it comes is... Is that the, the original source from which the light comes is the the pure awareness, uh, the pure awareness I am. By following ego, by uh, fixing our attention on ego, ego um, ego subsides back into its source, and uh, we are swallowed by the pure uh, the, the the pure light, the light of pure awareness. Likewise, if we follow the uh, that is in the analogy. If you're following that reflected beam of light that is illumining the dark room, the more you follow it, the shorter that beam becomes. That is analogous to the subsidence of ego. When you actually come to the point from which that light is reflected, namely the mirror outside, the, 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 ego, the, the, the ray of light shrinks to nothing. And when you, put your, when you come very close to the mirror, your, your head covers the mirror, so it's no longer reflecting the sunlight. But then you see, oh, I don't need this mirror to see because I'm in the full sunlight. So, um, I mean, this is, this is an analogy given. We can think about the analogy and how it applies to this practice of self-investigation. If we are following, if we follow ego, Bhagavan sometimes used the analogy of a, of a dog um, following the master's scent. It doesn't matter uh, where the master is. If a dog has caught hold of the master's scent, he will follow that scent relentlessly until he finds his master. The, the ego is like the scent of the master. If we hold on to ego, that is when we're investigating ego, ego is a mixed awareness, I am this body. When we hold on to that to, to when we when we attend to ego, what we are attending to is not the adjunct, but to the essential I am uh, portion of ego. If we follow that back to its source, then we we are, we we uh, that is like the dog 
tracing its master, following the master's scent and finding the master, or like following that reflected ray of light coming out into the full sunlight and then being swallowed by that full sunlight. So all, all analogies have their limitations, but the, the benefit of these analogies is they illustrate even though ego is not the pure awareness I am, it's a, a reflected awareness, by following ego, we return to its source. By, by, by attending to ego, ego will subside and back into its source, and there we will be swallowed by the light of pure awareness. We mean that it is ego following itself. It's not the best. I mean, in the, in the case of the of the dog uh, and the master scent analogy, the dog is different, the master scent is different. In the case of this uh, reflected ray of light, the, the one who is following the reflected ray of light and the reflected ray of light are different. So these analogies, of course, they, 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 they don't hold good in every respect, because in the case of self-investigation, it is ego following itself. Ego is turning its attention back on itself, thereby it subsides back into its source and is swallowed by the light of pure awareness, which is its own its source and its substance, its own reality is that light. So these analogies are all useful to a certain extent, but uh, we, we, when, we, when we come across an analogy, we use, need to think about it and we need to understand what it is trying to illustrate. We shouldn't take any, any analogy too far. We shouldn't think that in self-investigation, uh, but, but the ego we're investigating is something other than the ego that is investigating. Obviously, ego is investigating itself. By investigating itself, it returns to its source, because so long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, e ego is rising and flourishing. When ego turns its attention back on itself, its nature is to subside back into its source. By subsiding back into its source, it is thereby, when it subsides completely into its source, it is thereby swallowed, and the source, which is the light of pure awareness I am, alone remains. That is like following that reflected ray of light until you're out in the open sunlight. When you're out in the open sunlight, your head covers the mirror, so the mirror no longer reflects light, but the, the reflected light of the mirror is no longer necessary because you're in the full sunlight. When the, when the dog finds the master, when he follows the scent and finds the master, he's no longer concerned about the scent because he's found what he was following, which is his master. I, I hope that explains that adequately. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank right. you. The next question, Michael, is uh, some may find Atma Vichara an abstract concept to grasp. Could Mantra Japa be recommended as a starting point? Uh, it could be recommended, but it's Bhagavan of his own accord never recommended anything else because Atma Vichara is not an abstract concept. Are you an abstract concept? Is I an abstract concept? But one thing we all know, we are all saying I, I, I all the time. There's nothing abstract about I am. I am is the one thing that is clear of it, but we know more clearly than anything else. The one thing we always know. Um, we don't know I am as it is because now we have mixed and conflated it. By rising as ego, we mix and conflate the pure I am 
with a set of adjuncts, namely a body consisting of five sheaves. But there's nothing abstract about I am. And attending to I am is also not abstract. It may, to the, to the mind that is accustomed to going outwards, always attending to objects which are gross, it may seem to be something very subtle, but um, a little effort of being self-attentive, by, by a little effort of being self-attentive, we quickly become familiar with being, what it means to be self-attentive. Then it will no longer seem abstract. So what is required is practice. The more we practice, the less abstract it will seem. And why to practice something else? Uh, sooner or later, we have to come to this practice. So why to, even when Bhagavan, <clears throat> very instructive, what, when, um, uh, when Kavya Kanta, uh, Ganpati Sastri, when he first came to Bhagavan, actually he knew about Bhagavan several years earlier, but he wasn't interested. But one day when he was, he was, He'd been doing uh, uh, some sort of what he thought was tapa, some mantra japa or something. One day he became very disheartened about his lack of progress because he had certain aims and ambitions and he didn't seem to be achieving anything. So one day he became disheartened by his, his lack of uh, any progress in the path that he was following. And he happened to be in Tiruvannamalai at that time. Uh, I think he was staying in the temple or some, somewhere. So he then remembered this Brahmana Swami who's living up on the hill. So he thought maybe this, this young boy knows something. So he climbed up the hill to ask. Uh, this was in 1907. I think he first heard about Bhagavan in 1903 or 1904 because he'd been to Tiruvannamalai and lived in Tiruvannamalai for some time. Uh, um, so he came up to Bhagavan and he said to Bhagavan, I have done a cross of Japas, I've studied all the Vedas, I've done this, I've done that, and so on, so on, so on forth. But still it's not clear to me what is tapas. Please enlighten me. Bhagavan just kept quiet and just looked at him without replying anything. Then after some time, Kaviganta said, I've heard about such, I've read about such Chakshu Diksha in the Sastras, but I don't understand the meaning of it. Please tell me in words. Then Bhagavan said, Nanan Embadu, Engirandu, Purupadukirado, Adei Gavanetal, Manam Ange Linamahum, Aduve Tapas. That uh, th what that means is, if one attentively observes that from which, what that from where, what says I I goes out, there the mind will be dissolved. That alone is tapas. What Bhagavan means here when he says nan nan, he doesn't mean that that in this case he's not meaning nan nan in the sense of I am I. He's talking about. Because Kavyaganta had said, I have read so many Vedas, I've, I've read so many, I've read the Vedas, I've read this, I've read that, I've done this type of, I've done this, so many crores of mantra japa, I've done this, I've done that. That I that he's referring to, that's what Bhagavan means by nan nan embadu, uh, what, that, uh, what says I, I, um, uh, that is I, comma I in that sense. Um, Engirandu, from where uh, it uh, where it goes out, um, 
at a gabnital, if one if one attends to that, if one attentively observes that, there the mind will subside. So where does the from where did this this what says I I I in our ego? From where does it rise? It rises only from our own. Uh, being from I am from the pure awareness I am. So if one attentively observes that, the, there the mind will be dissolved, and that alone is tapas. That was the, the first teaching that uh, Bhagavan gave. And in many books, it is said that Bhagavan then gave a second teaching, but he didn't, of his own accord, give a second teaching. The reason he gave the second teaching is that Kavyaganta was a bit bewildered by the unfamiliarity of this teaching. So he asked, is it not possible to attain that state even by mantra japa? To which Bhagavan replied, Oru mantra te japam panital uh, andha mantra dvani engirindu puruparikiridu endru gavnital manam angelina markiridu adutan tapas. And what that means is, if one does japa of a mantra, if one attentively observes from where that mantra sound goes out, there the mind is dissolved. That itself is tapas. So he was asked about mantra japa, but what actually Bhagavan did, he gave the same teaching because from where does I, I rise? It rises only from I, the, what the e, from ego, that which says I, 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 from where does it rise? It rises only from ourself. When we repeat a, when we, when we do japa of a mantra, when we repeat a mantra, from where is the mantra dwani, the mantra sound coming? It's coming only from ourselves. So in both cases, Bhagavan is recommending, but we he's not recommending japa as such. He says if you do japa, if you attentively observe. Wherever, wherever mantra sound is coming from, in other words, if you carefully observe yourself from whom the mantra sound is coming, there the mind is dissolved, that is tapas. So here Bhagavan is not recommending mantra japa. He's recommending what he, he, what he suggested in the first thing is attending to the source from which ego rises, is the same source from which the, the mantra uh, it's the same source from which everything arises, because everything arises from ego, and ego arises from the from the pure awareness I am. So in both cases, Bhagavan is is recommending that we attentively observe ourselves, and because if we observe ourselves, there the mind is dissolved, and that is tapas. So Bhagavan never, of his own accord, recommended mantra japa or anything else. Even when he was asked particularly about mantra japa, he 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 still recommended the same thing of a be, being self-attentive because that is the only way to dissolve the mind, and only the state in which the mind is dissolved is true tapas, according to Bhagavan. I hope that adequately answers that question. If you want to do mantra japa, by all means do so, but. It is. It it can. Nothing can be a substitute for self investigation. So, if you want to do mantra japa while you're repeating your mantra, try to attend to the one who is repeating the mantra. Try to attend to where that mantra sound is coming. It's coming only from you. So, attend to yourself. That is the implication that, of what Bhagavan taught there.
Well, Michael, the next question is, uh, it's, um, it's just curious. <laughs> what might a self-realized life look like today without an ashram and with, and with so many things to do and grab our attention in this fast-changing, accelerating world? <clears throat> a self-realization, a self-realized life looks like I am nothing but I am. That is, the, the world appears in whose view? Only in the view of ego. When ego ceases, when, what is called self-realization is nothing but the destruction of ego. When ego is destroyed, there's no world or modern day time or ancient time or anything. There is just pure being, I am. So the self, a self-realized life looks the same in, in any age or any circumstances because it is a it is the state in which ego is destroyed. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of, the, of Uludunaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So in self-realization, ego is destroyed, everything else is destroyed. What remains is just pure being. Bhagavan has answered this. What, what it looks like, he's described beautifully in verse... 28 of Upadesha Undia. What he says in uh, verse 28 of Upadesha Undia is um, Tanadu il yadu ena tan terihil. If one knows what the real nature, what the nature of oneself is, that implies the real nature of oneself, pin then anadi ananta akanda sachidananda. Um, Actually, in the verse, he says, Pin Anadi Ananta Sat Akanda Chitananda. Uh, but that's a, for, he put the words in that order for the verse. Um, but it, what it implies is Anadi Ananta Akanda Sat Chitananda. Uh, uh, so Anadi means beginningless, without any beginning. Ananta means endless or uh, limitless. So it means infinite. So be beginningless, infinite. So uh, ananta means both both uh, endless in time and endless in, well, beyond time and space. But I mean, it means both eternal and infinite. And akanda means uh, unbroken. In other words, uh, undivided, unfragmented, ananda. So that is what self-realization looks like. And it's irrelevant whether... Uh, I mean, the, the modern day world or ancient world or future world, whatever, it's the same. Satchitananda remains Satchitananda, whatever be the appearance of the world. And, and the world ceases to exist when ego is destroyed because the world seems to exist only in the view of ego. So in the absence of ego, how can there be any world? In the absence of a dreamer, how can there be any dream? The, the problem is, all the, this sort of question arises because we take the jnani to be a person. The jnani is not a person. As Bhagavan often used to say, jnana me jnani. That means, jnana me jnani means jnana alone is the jnani. What is jnana? Jnana is pure awareness. Jnani means the one who knows pure awareness. So who knows pure awareness? Only pure awareness knows pure awareness. Ego can never know pure awareness because pure awareness can never be an object of knowledge. 
So vijnana is nothing. Vijnana is nothing but jnana. But we see vijnana as a person, and we say, "Oh, but Bhagavan, uh, Bhagavan answered questions, and he wrote poetry, and he cut vegetables, and he went round the hill." Um, so he, he must be knowing the world just as we are knowing it. No, he's not knowing it as he. What he knows is only I am. What we see as the world is what he sees as I am. So what he is seeing and what we are seeing is exactly the same. But whereas he is seeing it as it is, as Nadi Ananta Kanda Satchidananda, we are seeing it as a multitude of names and forms. So why are we seeing it thus? Because we've risen as ego. If we investigate ourselves, ego will be destroyed, and what will remain is Anadi, Ananta, Akanda, Satchidananda. I hope that adequately answers that question. Uh, the next question is, um, says, Michael, how is the concept of Vishayavasanas different to the modern concept of the subconscious mind, which they use in modern psychology um, and psychotherapy. These concepts look similar, at least at a superficial level. Yes, only at a superficial level. That is, the understanding of modern psychology is very, very superficial. Vasanas are very, very deep and subtle. That is, vasanas are the inclinations that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, uh, uh, attachments and everything. So they are all our desires and fears and so on in their seed form of a vasanas. Um, what they, how we relate that to modern psychology, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm not, I've never really, I mean, there's so many different ideas in modern psychology, but uh, nowadays, yes, the idea of a subconscious mind is a very popular idea, um, but uh, in the vasanas, um, well, we we can't say vasanas are subconscious because we we may not we we may not be clearly aware of all the vasanas that are uh, but are. In our heart, because our attention is looking outwards. But the more we go deep in the path of self-investigation, the more the vasanas uh, rise to the surface, and we become aware of them. So um, the vasanas are only a problem when they rise to the surface. So um, even to think of them as subconscious is not really very helpful in this in in this path. Um, yes, in a sense. Uh, sometimes uh, vasanas that we were not previously aware of rise to the surface of our mind. But so long as we weren't aware of them, they weren't a problem for us. It's when they rise to the surface of the mind, but they become a, it's clear that they're a problem. But as Bhagavan said, everything that is inside has to come out. So all the vasanas sooner or later have to expose themselves because only when they rise to the surface can we, are we free to make the choice whether to be swayed by them or whether to cling to self-attentiveness and thereby not be swayed by them. So it's a very, very different idea. Um, this vasanas is a um <clears throat> vasana, there, there are two terms which mean the same, vasanas and samskaras. 
I haven't come across this sort of uh, this idea anywhere except in um, in uh, I mean in in Vedanta and um, in Buddhism and maybe other forms of uh, Indic philosophy and religion. It's there, um, but this is something far far deeper than modern psychology, because modern psychology is all about the person, whereas this is about that we are trying yes the the the, the vasanas are what make up our personality but we are trying to go beyond that we are it's we are invested we are investigating ourselves to know what we actually are and in order to know what we actually are we need to free ourselves from the hold of vasanas we need to weaken the vasanas so we we cease to be inclined to follow the vasanas so I I don't think comparing it with psychology, uh, with modern psychological concepts, would be particularly useful. That is, the, the concept of vasanas, as explained by Bhagavan, is quite clear and quite simple. Vasanas, vishay, Bhagavan particularly used the term vishaya vasanas. Vishaya vasanas means our inclination to... Uh, to seek happiness in or to be aware of or to attend to anything other than ourselves. Vasana means inclination. Vishaya means uh, objects or phenomena, in other words, anything other than ourselves. It's a very simple and very clear concept. And I think if we try and compare it with modern psych with concepts in modern psychology, we'll just be confusing ourselves. It's not always helpful. Uh, comparing the ideas of one system of thought with another system of thought. There may be some, a certain degree of, uh, of correlation, but what is it to us? It need, it, it's, it's of no use to us knowing about these correlations because we're not here to study psychology. We're here to find out who am I. And what we actually are is beyond the mind. There was something which um, I just wanted to mention. Uh, when we talk about sanskaras and vasanas, insofar as they are the effects of uh, past actions, of past karma, in both uh, sort of in these Indian traditions, almost all of them in Indic traditions, whether it's the Buddhist or uh, some of these, the Romanical, doesn't matter which one, um, the, the effects of karma, the consequences, they uh, sort of form in a way the the shape or the structure to a degree, uh, sort of um, both our personalities, our embodiment, as well as the world around us, because of course, body uh, and world are inseparable, uh, the yes, world we yeah. have through our sensory organs. Yeah. And so it really is much deeper. I, I mean, Vishavasana, of course, as you say, the tendency, so that's a slightly different concept. But the Vasanas as such, uh, they, in a way, they provide the context in which inquiry can take place and free will can be exercised yes. and um and i think that 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 was really quite an important thing um and and it also gets us away from this thing of karmic determinism that everything is determined uh there is a contextual placing you know your place uh, where you are has a lot to do with the past uh your past actions and then the and then of course the tendencies which you have from the past your vishayavasanas uh will uh 
may uh, direct which way you go, but you do have choices within that to not entirely go along. Uh, it's kind of, I think, you know, this is a question which comes up again and again, and I think you pointed this out, but yeah, it's just yeah. something which occurred yeah. to me. That is the, the effects of karma are, are twofold. One is the fruit and the other is the seed. The fruit is what we experience as prarabdha. That is what is predetermined. The vasanas are, are what are, the, are what drive us to do the actions that bear the fruit, um, because they are the, the vasanas are the seeds. Um, the, uh, but as you say, we have freedom because the vasanas are only inclinations or tendencies, as you say. So we are free to follow our inclinations or not to follow them. I, I may um, go into a shop and see someone's left their wallet there. I may feel an inclination to take that wallet, but I also feel an inclination. No, taking that person's wallet is not uh, would not be an honest thing to do. So I hand it over to the shopkeeper and say, "Someone seems to have left their wallet here. If anyone comes asking, please give." Please give it. That, that, that is because I'm there are conflicting <laughs> inclinations in my mind. One inclination: Oh, it'd be nice to have some money. This person may have a lot of money in their wallet. Or the other inclination is, no, I want to be a good person. I don't want to do anything dishonest. I don't want to deprive someone else of what is rightfully theirs. So they're very, very, I mean, I'm just using this as an example. But as in this case, there are so many conflicting inclinations we have. And we are the ones who decide which inclination we follow. Do I, do I, am I, Am I more strongly inclined to be dishonest and to take the wallet or more strongly inclined to do the right thing and give the wallet to the shopkeeper and ask them to return to whoever comes and claims it? So the, uh, like that, in every moment of our life, we are faced with choices. We have inclinations that draw us in different directions. We have to we have the freedom to choose which inclinations to follow and which inclinations not to follow, and it's because of this freedom that we are able to uh, practice self investigation. Because the the basic uh, choice we have at every moment is: do I attend to myself or do I attend to something other my for myself? The vishaya vasanas will incline us to attend to other things. The sat vasana will incline us to attend to ourselves. But we have the freedom to decide which inclination to follow. So the determinism is only about uh, the prarabdha. That is what we are to experience. That is predetermined. That is the fruit of our past actions, the actions we've done under the sway of our vasanas. That is the agamya which is the action that bears fruit, is the actions that we do under the sway of our vasanas. And the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are the actions we have chosen to allow, we've chosen to allow ourselves to be swayed by those vasanas. So it's a, it's a far, far, far deeper concept than the modern concept of, uh, of the subconscious mind. And another thing Bhagavan said about vasanas Bhagavan compared vasanas to the film in a, in a cinema projector. And he said, the whole world is nothing but a projection of our vasanas. Just like in dream, everything we, we see in a dream is just our own thoughts. And both the seeds that give rise to those thoughts are vasanas. 
Likewise, our present state is just a dream. So this entire universe is nothing but a projection of our own vishaya vasanas. All the, the seeds that give rise to vishayas, vishayas means objects or phenomena, are vishaya vasanas. Michael, I just missed that a bit. So are you saying that both the objects we encounter in the world, as well as the ones that we feel uh, disposed to perhaps desire or avoid or whatever, move towards it, these are both vishayavasanas, that one is a fruit and one is a seed? Uh, no, we can't quite say it like that. Um, that is, Everything that we experience is a projection of our Vishaya Vasanas. But many of the things we experience, we are not choosing. That, that is, um, we, we, in life, so many things are happening, but are not happening according to our choices. There was a pandemic. That pandemic was, nobody chose to experience that pandemic. It happened to be part of our prarabdha, but there was a pandemic. We may experience poverty. We may experience illness. So many things happen to us, but are not our choice. But though they are not our choice, they are, they are, but that is, Bhagavan explains it very nicely in verse six of Arunachashtakam. He says, but he he there he describes this this process of projection. What he what he says in um in verse six of Arunachashtakam, in the first sentence he says, Undoru porul arivoli ulameni. That means there is only one substance or one reality. You, the heart, the light of awareness. Uladu unil aladu ila adiseya shakti. In you exists an extraordinary power which is not other than you. That Adiseya Shakti is what is called Maya or mind. He doesn't say that here, but elsewhere he clarifies that. Um, and then in the next sentence, he is is a uh, um, is quite a. It, it, Bhagavan has packed a lot of meaning into it. Um, <clears throat> Uh, what the basic meaning of it, or the, the, if we expand it slightly, appearing from that, that means appearing from that uh, Adiseya Shakti, that, uh, that extraordinary power of mind or Maya, along with awareness, seri series of subtle shadowy thoughts spinning in the whirl of destiny, Destiny, that means prarabdha, but he, he uses a Tamil word, not, a, not the Sanskrit word prarabdha, but it means prarabdha, are seen on the mirror that is the mind light as a shadowy world picture, both inside and outside, via sense organs such as the eye. That's inside and outside via the sense organs such as the eye, like a shadow picture but uh, stands out or is projected by a lens. So what he, what he means, the, the series of shadowy thoughts is the, are the subtle vasanas, the seeds that give rise to everything. They are, are spinning in the world of destiny, just like the, the um, cinema reel is, 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 uh, is spinning in the, um, in the, um, in the projector, the, 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 it's the world of destiny. So it is the, the destiny determines what we are, what is to happen to us, what we are to experience is determined by uh, destiny. 
so that th- those are b- projection of Bhavishaya Vasanas. But we also Bhavishaya Vasanas, uh, that is the the manifest the, the projection is at various levels. What is on projected on the screen, we have no uh control over because that's determined by Prarabdha. What we have control over is how we respond to that. That is what is uh, uh, um that is, we we can be inclined to do this or to do that, to attend to this or to attend to that. That is where our freedom lies. We have no freedom to change what is appearing on the screen, but we have freedom to uh, choose what we attend to. We can put it that way. But even that is not. It, it's very difficult to 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 grasp this. It, it's a very extremely subtle and extremely complex uh, process, but. Um, all we need to understand is that um, whatever is appearing outside is a projection of our vasanas, and we have other vasanas that are inclining us to to respond to what is appearing outside in one way or another. So those are our responses, our actions that we have. Uh, we we can choose which vasanas to allow ourselves to be swayed by, but we can't choose the vasanas that are projected as the, um, uh, on the screen, as it were. So it, it's it's complicated, and we, we, we need not try to break our head trying to understand these things. We just need to understand the basic principles. Ultimately, all we need to understand is that none of these things are real. They all exist only in the view of ego. What we need to know is who am I? We need to know the reality of ego. If we know the reality of ego, we'll know the reality of all these things. Otherwise, if we try to understand exactly how this projection is happening and what is the relationship between the, the projected vasanas and the vasanas that are rising to prompt our, us to act in one way or another, it, it's we, we're we're investigating, we're not here to investigate vasanas. We're investigating to whom are all these vasanas. Because if we start allowing our mind to go outwards, trying to understand all these things, then we can start building up more and more elaborate philosophies and more and more questions will arise and more and more theories will have to develop to answer the questions. But the important question to ask is, who am I? and to turn our attention back within. So understanding about vasanas and things, it's useful to a limited extent, but we shouldn't try to investigate these things too much because we will never, we we, we cannot adequately understand these things. And we, we cannot and we need not. What we need to understand about vasanas is the Vishaya vasanas are the inclinations to go outwards. We need to stop. We we need to not allow ourselves to be swayed by those vasanas. In other words, we we need to stop attending to the pictures on the screen and attend to the one who is seeing the pictures on the screen. So lately, um, I completely am with you, uh, uh, dear Michael. Lately, though, <laughs> what keeps coming is, oh, it's, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. If it's meant to be, Bhagwan will take me. If it's meant to be, someday it'll happen. Yes. And and you know that just it's I'm not calling it complacency because I'm trying. It's literally because I don't know how to what it means. 
I know you keep saying it's I, it's obvious, but that's what's challenging is that very subtle thing. I'm unable to, or I don't know what it means to be turning in, I guess, other than detaching from outside. That I am understanding. You, you say, I don't know. Who is that I? Oh, God, I know Brahmastra, please. I- <laughs> well, that, that is the only answer. But Bhagavan wasn't using Brahmastra. Uh, he was using his Brahmastra for a very good reason. Because we, we, we talk about I as if it's something that when we talk about saying it's difficult or it's, uh, it's not clear. But we are using I all the time. That is the one thing that we are all clearly aware of is I. Our own existence is very, very clear to us. So all we need to do is to attend to ourselves, attend to our own being, attend to I am. Well, Michael, can I just uh, interject yes. here a bit? It's something yes. we said before that uh, pure awareness itself is uh, what you know—that sense of presence, that yes. uh, you know, that conscious presence uh, yes. that uh, seems to be. Uh, you know, the I am and so on. Yeah. And that's why when we're awake, we are conscious, there is a conscious presence. Uh, mm. And that's, uh, you know, and an awareness of that simply yeah. without any contents, uh, you know. Whether uh, we're awake or asleep, the one thing we're always clearly aware of is our own being, I am. So that might be a little bit helpful, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, because uh, it's very difficult um, when one says, you know, the sense I am and being because, uh, uh we are aware of our own experience. We are aware that we are aware. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and perhaps, you know, that needs to be connected that that is where, uh, you know, that that is the sense I am. Without that awareness, yeah. there is no I am. Yeah. Uh, you know, that is what it is. And that may or may not be helpful, uh, Sudha and others, I don't know. Yeah. You know. Uh, and uh, that's why, you know, when we let go of all contents, because our mind is always busy and there's always a content in that awareness. And when, you know, if we're in a, if one is just present, just aware, uh, then, uh, you know, there is a sense of peace and there is that uh, kind of fulfillment within consciousness, yeah. uh, within awareness. We're a bit closer to the I amness. Yeah, um, but there may be the, the, um, a certain kind of a subtle object still, something crosses yeah. the mind, but there is a greater sense of peace. And when people meditate, sometimes they feel that sense because perhaps, you know, for a moment, the mind is less busy. There are fewer contents of awareness. So I think, if, I don't know if that is helpful at all to anybody, but. Yes, yeah. There is one last question, Michael. What, can I just say one sure. thing on that? That is what the <laughs> word I essentially refers to is only to awareness. Now we, we, have, we have mixed and conflated this basic awareness I with a set of adjuncts. So we're aware of ourselves as I am Shalini, I am Michael, I am, we, we take ourselves with this body and mind, this person. But what I essentially refers to is just to that, is just to awareness, that which is aware of all these things. So we, we need to, when we read Bhagavan's teaching, we need to think very deeply about what it is. And most important, we need to try to put it into practice. The more we put it into practice, the clearer it will become what Bhagavan is talking about. So there's no, there's no shortcut. That is, thinking carefully, thinking deeply about it is necessary. It's very helpful. But there's no, nothing is a substitute for practice. Uh, Thinking deeply about what Bhagavan says and understanding what Bhagavan says helps us in the practice, but we can understand 
only to the extent to which we go deep in the practice. So we've got to think about it. That this is the sravana manana nidhiti asana. The sravana is we 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 carefully read what he's written. We manana means we think deeply about it. Nidhiti asana means we try to put it into practice. The more we try to put it into practice, the clearer it all becomes. And so the deeper our sravana manana become. And the deeper the sravana manana become, the deeper the practice also becomes. So the three go uh, hand in hand. It's an iterative process. Yes, what Shalini has uh, shared was greatly helpful. I wish there yeah. is a follow-up where I could reach out to Shalini. That was uh, wonderful. I almost wish like I had an email that I can reach out to you with, uh, for, for, you know, just sharing um, some uh, guidances here. But um, Michael, what you had said makes sense. Um, have been doing that again, that subtle confusion, I guess, because I'm such a beginner. Um, uh, you know, um, but challenge is, is really I, I am such a beginner, you say. Oh, Forget no. the beginner bit and hold on to the I am. I know you will say that. I just knew it. <laughs> well, it's the only thing to say. That's what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. No, I think uh, we're all <laughs> beginners. None of us really we, knows. It's just that we're always struggling, all of us. So. Let us forget about being... It's true, we are all beginners, but let us forget the beginner bit. Let's hold on to the I am, and the beginner will drop off. Um, Sudha or anybody, if there are questions uh, that to be clarified, uh, I, th I think the best way is to just send it to the Ramana email. And, uh, you know, we can start a discussion on it, everyone. And if anybody's there for the face-to-face, -face, it can continue there. Sometimes, you know, that kind of thing does help to clarify. Yeah? Thank you, Shalini. <laughs> uh, there is a last, uh, the last uh, two questions. Okay, uh, so we'll go through them quickly. It's coming up to five. Um, and this is that, uh, it says, uh, can you ask Michael about when we go with... Uh, the lower vasanas, example, getting angry with a family member after years of trying to be better in the relationship and then feel so guilty and bad about ourselves. What do we do then? I guess cling to I am, but it's so hard when we just feel the, the swing of the karma once again. That is, the vishaya vasanas can be classified as subha vasanas and asubha vasanas, but these are just relative. Um, that is, it, it's a scale. Some, some are, are more subha, some are more asubha. But it doesn't matter whether they're subha or asubha. They're all vasanas. They're all drawing our attention away from ourselves. The way to weaken all vasanas is to turn our attention back to ourselves more and more. The more we, the, the vasanas that will be weakened first are, tend to be the asubha vasanas. That is, we we it's, in a way it's easier to give up the super vasanas. The, the 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 disagreeable vasanas is are easier to give up or to we they they get weakened first, and so our mind does as we go deeper in this practice, our mind does get purified, and so the super vasanas tend to predominate. But even those subhavasanas are still drawing our attention outwards. So 
we are we we need not even worry ultimately about whether they're good, uh, relatively good or relatively bad vasanas. All vasanas, even relatively good vasanas, are ultimately bad because they're taking our attention away from ourselves. So the only way, the most effective way to deal with all vasanas is to cling to self attentiveness. Of course, when we are allowing our attention to come outwards, we need to at least try to avoid the more harmful vasanas, the more disagreeable vasanas. Um, so if you're if you're if you find you get angry easily, you should think about uh, Bhagavan's teachings and think what is the point of getting angry? All this is just a passing show. In that in that way you can you can um you can uh, even without turning your attention within you can you can detach yourself from the, uh, the more harmful vasanas, but ultimately we can deal with the vasanas at a deeper level only by clinging to self-attentiveness. Uh, the next question, uh, it, um, I'm sort of the last two questions are very quick. Uh, it's just some clarification. Yeah. It says, Michael, what is the word you often use? Uh, I think the word is 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 introverted process. I think it must be introverted. Is that the word, Michael? Quite yeah, often, inward turning. It must be yeah. inward turn. I generally don't use the word introversion because introversion has um, it's a term that is used in a lot in psychology. Mm. It, the, the actual meaning of introvert is is turned within. Mm. So uh, it, we could use that word, but because of its psychological connotations, I generally don't. Mm. But the term that Bhagavan uses is. Uh, antamukam means uh, facing inwards, or in Tamil, Bhagavan often uses the term ahamukam, which also means facing inwards, but can also mean facing eyewards. But since what Bhagavan means by facing inwards is facing eyewards, it's uh, he he he's very fond of that term ahamukam. He uses it in many places because it it the the. Though aham has a double meaning in Tamil because aham is both the Sanskrit first person pronoun, I, and it's also a separate Tamil word that means inside. So it has, uh, when Bhagavan talks about ahamukam, it, it, it means turning the mind within, but it underlies, under, underlines the fact that turning the mind within means turning the mind towards I. Uh, Michael, I think I've got the wrong uh, word because Sanjay, this is Sanjay, he wants to ask uh, because he's written down introvertive uh, process. He's not sure. So let him ask the question what he wants to clarify. It's better. Sanjay? Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, sir, so, sir, you often say that Shravana, Manana, and Nididhyasana are intuitive work, uh, in Intuitive uh, process. I don't oh, know. No, no, no. Uh, iterative. Oh, uh, what, iterative. What is that? How do you spell it, sir? I T E R A T I V E. I T E R I V E. No, no, no. Uh, uh, um, I'll just spell it once yeah. more. Um, okay. I T uh, because it's sometimes do. Um, it's I T E R. A-T-I-V-E. Iterative okay. means when you go back over and yeah. over again, you go from one to ten and back to one, or whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you go through the steps again and again. Okay, Sanjay, okay. Are, are you are you familiar with the English word reiterate? Uh, 
Yes, yes. I if am, you re- I re- yes, reiterate I means going over again. So yes. iterative means it's what you go over again and again and again. Okay, okay, okay. You often use this, but I was I was not able to this understand it and yeah. But but the reason I use this is often mm-hmm. people sometimes if you listen to lectures on Vedanta, they say first you have to do sravana. Mm-hmm. Once you if you do the sravana, then you know what is being you. That is the the test that you've done the sravana properly is you can repeat what you've le- what has been said, but then the, the then you have to do the manana. That means you have to understand it. When you can not only repeat what is said, but explain what it means, then you've done your manana. Then you have to do the nidityasana, as if it's step A, B, C. Mm. But it's not. It's step A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C. As we go, as we go deeper and deeper in the practice, that is... For example, I think this will be the experience of anyone who has been studying Bhagavan's teachings for many years and trying to put them into practice. The same text that we read some 30, 40 years ago, we're still reading the same text, but those texts are are far more meaningful to us now than they were 30 or 40 years ago. That is, Bhagavan's uh, uh, particularly works like Uludunapdu, Padeshundia, Nana, they reveal their inner meaning to the extent to which we put them into practice. So now the same text that we uh, may have been reading for the last 30, 40, 50 years, those same texts are far more meaningful to us now than they were even a year ago, let alone 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago, because it's as we go deeper in the practice, the same we we see more depth of meaning in what Bhagavan said, more significance in every word that Bhagavan has, has uh, written. So uh, this is why it's an iterative process. As we go deeper in the practice, our sravana will also become deeper, and our manana will also become deeper. That's got why it, I say it's an iterative process. Got it's it, a got repeated it. process. Repetitive process. Repeated. Yes. Iterative. Iterative. Thank you, sir. Okay. Uh, The last question, it's again a brief question. Um, And it says that last year I tried to do Girivalam but could not walk after some time. I have very soft and sensitive uh, feet, soles. Is it okay to wear thick socks and do Girivalam? What do you think? Uh, Maharishi would say uh, if such a request was made. Generally, barefoot is what is recommended, but we, um, uh, it it is difficult for many people if they're not used to walking barefoot. Um, but at least we should try for some. I mean, I I can't. I, I I'm not an authority on this. What is recommended in the Puranas and what Bhagavan referred to is that it should be done barefoot. But if that's not possible, at least try to do barefoot as much as you can. That's all I can say. I mean, I, I wouldn't like to condone. Just, I, I think nowadays people wear socks in temples. So just as people wear socks in temples, you can say, okay, well, in a temple you'll never go in with your with footwear. But um, some people nowadays seem to think it's it's okay to go in with socks. So the same license you can take, I suppose. 
you should it it the idea is that it's sacred like a temple going around the, the Arunachal is the Adi Lingwasus Adi Linga Swarupa, it's the original linga form. So uh going around Arunachal is like entering a temple. Um so in that sense, we for that reason it it is um we 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 should treat it as if we are going to a temple. So just as in a temple we will go barefoot. Or we certainly wouldn't wear shoes. Um, I think, I mean, people may have different opinions about whether it's right or wrong to to wear socks in temples, but certainly temples in cold places, I think people do tend to wear socks because uh, because of the cold. So, um, yeah, I suppose you could take a license. It, it, ultimately, we have to decide for ourselves what we feel is right or wrong. It may be uncomfortable, but sometimes it's worth it's if you're able to bear the discomfort, you will get the satisfaction at the end that you've done it. But if you're not able to bear the discomfort beyond a certain extent, at least do do a certain amount barefoot. Um I'm I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to just speak like this. this yeah. Yeah, no, certainly. Okay. I, I just wanted to like kind of share a thought that you know, I'm not saying I'm necessarily right here, but that seems very ritualistic um, to um, suggest that it must be done barefoot. You know what I mean? It almost seems very counter to like what Ramana um, is all about, it, despite it, it probably it, being what he said. But it yeah. is not. It's not a rigid ritual, but it's just a matter of showing respect. Do you think it's ritualistic if you go to a temple taking off your shoes? It's just it's no. just a natural thing to do. No, oh, well, actually, I'm actually, you know, I'm just having a real like fresh perspective right now that it's also about other people's perceptions. So yeah. perhaps, like, also, it's like perhaps one of the motivations might be how it would impact other people and yeah, uh, be well, a yeah. To them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that also we should we should, as far as possible, set a good example. Um, but it's just a. Would you feel comfortable going into a, a temple wearing your footwear? No, take it out, take it off. Yeah, this, you're, you're this is a little different because this is outside. If I'm remembering correctly, when it, I went to the room, yeah, but it 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 is yeah. the reason we go barefoot round the hill is because it is Arunachal is the Adi Linga Sarupa, so it's like going to a temple when we're going right. when we're going round the hill. But on the same road, if we're going to the shops, if we're for example, if in the middle of the day. If we're mm -hmm. staying in Ramanashram, we need to go to the town to do some shopping. The yeah. same Giri production road, we can walk on with, with footwear. That's not wrong because we're not doing it. But when we're going around the hill, it is, it is a, a form of worship. It's a form of it's showing our love and devotion to Aranachala. So it's, I don't know. I, I can only speak about my feelings. To me, I I have when I was living there for twenty years, I was going around almost every day, and it just seems to me the natural and the right thing to do. But I'm not going to prescribe for others what they yeah. should do. That's why I say ultimately we should we each have to decide for ourselves what what feels right. But I think it's good to consider. How we we would feel? Would we feel right to go into a temple wearing shoes? If we yeah. wouldn't, then we we shouldn't go around the hill wearing shoes. Yeah, no, that's a that's a fair point. I was I was in Thiruvannamalai a few years ago, and 
I don't know, for some reason I didn't do this circum circumambulation around the hill, but I did climb Orunachala and I found that very painful barefoot. I think that's why I perhaps have that had that comment. Yeah, yeah. Well, nowadays <laughs> we we tend to well, many of us live in in colder countries where footwear isn't it. Uh, we at least in the winter we have to wear footwear and we have to wear shoes and that softens the feet and um many of us even if we're living in south india or somewhere we 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 live relatively um we we may be working in office where we have to wear shoes or something so uh, often, a lot of us have become quite soft in the, these uh these matters but if you're used to it walking barefoot is not difficult if you're not used to it it is difficult it's true um but uh well who is to say i mean who who am i to say all i can say is what i feel is right is as far as possible to go barefoot or yes I, I i suppose but since people take a license in cold places to go into temples wearing socks um uh you you can like in 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 european countries where there are hindu temples you often see people um uh, even hindu people they go in with i always remove i always go in barefoot but i see many hindus going in with um um with wearing socks it's a license they take uh, i suppose the cold is a possible justification for that who who I, I ultimately, it's a matter of we why we go round the hill is an expression of our love for Arunachala, and we have to do what feels right to us. I think on that note, uh, yeah, because uh, this is a discussion which can go on, but yeah, it can go point on, out yeah. that uh, that sort of rituals are sort of cultural uh, markers, the norms yeah. uh, which. Uh, they're there to bring about a kind of uh, respect and social harmony, uh, you know, and every society has them. I mean, something like a thank yeah. you is a ritual. Uh, yeah. and there is a reason why we do it. And and shows of respect are there in every culture. And of course, in the Indian uh, setting, you have this thing of taking off your, off your shoes also in mosques and not so much in churches. So it is to do with a particular culture. At the but same time, there in, the, in the Bible, in when, when Moses approached the burning bush, he, the first thing he was told is, take off your shoes, this is sacred ground. Yeah. The same burning bush that said, I am that I am, first told him to take off his shoes. So yeah. it's there in almost, in most cultures. cultures. Um, but, but I think the other thing is that uh, it's a question of lifestyle. I mean, people did go about bare feet uh, yeah. in, in India quite a lot. And so you have the the sort of bodily tools, if you like, to yeah, cope with that. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, so there is a possibility of doing it quite easily. Yeah. Uh, um, whereas with the change in lifestyle uh, yeah. and culture, it's a bit more difficult. Uh, and uh, I think there maybe one can follow the middle way of the Buddha, and, you know, say a bit of moderation, uh, you know, until yeah. and unless, you know, one is able to do yeah. it with ease. Because as they say, even for meditation, if you push it too hard, you don't necessarily get the benefit. I mean, yeah. so I think one has to yeah. be a little yeah. bit uh, yeah. sensible about these things. You know, it's yeah. like with food. I mean, well, it would be lovely to just drink water from the Ganges, but if it's very polluted, you're not going to do that yeah. because you'll be sick, you know. I mean, yeah. so I think that one can moderate it with love and respect. I mean, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, that's why I say ultimately we each have to decide for ourselves what feels right. Absolutely. No, absolutely, yes.
So because, I because I was part of that culture for so many years, for me, it feels right going around barefoot. But I, I'm, I'm not here to tell others what what they should or shouldn't do. We each have to do what feels mm-hmm. right for ourselves. Absolutely. Um, we've sort of come to the conclusion. Can I just say, there's one more question. Someone had written in the chat. Um, Hector had written to everyone. How can we love something that we don't know? Obviously, we can't love something that we don't know. But what we do know is I am. So we can love I am. That's all Bhagavan asks us to do, to love I am. To love our own being. Because our own being is what we always know. And it's what alone is real. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya 